and that my journey was my journey and that I didn't need to compare my journey to other people's. And when you're young and honestly, even today with Instagram and everything, you have to constantly be reminding yourself that everyone is on their own path and just because something looks shiny on the outside doesn't mean that that's shiny on the inside and you just have to find your way. Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. I want to welcome this week's guest, Ellen Bennett, to our show today. Ellen is the founder and CEO of Headley & Bennett, a leading Los Angeles-based culinary workwear and lifestyle brand. Fresh out of culinary school and a few other crazy jobs she had in Mexico City, Ellen moved back to LA and hustled her way to cook professionally in some of the city's most acclaimed restaurants. Tired of wearing the kitchen's cheap, poorly designed garments, Ellen was on a mission to create the world's most stylish, functional, durable, and beautiful apron for chefs like herself. While working multiple jobs and using all of her $300 in savings, Ellen made her dream a reality and created the largest gourmet apron manufacturer in the world. Today, Ellen's must-have aprons are found in more than 6,000 restaurants and hotels, as well as hundreds of thousands of home cooks all around the world. Headley & Bennett has garnered a cult following, outfitting top chefs around the world, and can be found everywhere from Williams-Sonoma to Whole Foods. We'll talk to Ellen about her wild entrepreneurial journey from announcing lottery winners on TV in Mexico to disrupting an industry without any formal education. Ellen's story truly proves that you don't have to have all the answers to make your dream a reality. Ellen, it is such an honor to have you on, and I'm looking forward to jumping right in. And especially for you, I would love to start with your childhood. So much of who you are today as a woman is truly impacted by your culture, living in LA and visiting your family back in Mexico. Can you share more about what your childhood was like? So I am half Mexican, half English. I was born in LA and I spent most of my childhood going to and from Mexico during the summers. And it was an amazing experience because I got to live both worlds in like full immersion. It wasn't like I'd go for a month or not even like a week or something. I would go for three plus months. And so I really had friends in the neighborhood. I lived there. I felt like I was fully Mexican, even if I was both Mexican and American. And I loved it because by the time I was old enough to recognize happiness, I think that I could very clearly see people's genuine joy in situations that had nothing to do with resources and they had nothing to do with money and it just had to do with life. And I really appreciated that. And it kind of helped build a foundation for me where my focus has never been about, you know, how much money can you have and things like that, but really about what are the things that you can accomplish in life that make you feel joy and how can you spend time doing things you love and accomplishing big, hairy, audacious goals that the journey is the joy, not the like end destination. So that was a really beautiful thing that I, I think I got to experience at a very young age. 
Absolutely. And also talking about your childhood, you were always doing things with your hands, right? Whether it was cooking or even painting different rooms in your house and your mom actually never stopped you. So can you talk to us more about those moments in your life? Because I really think it's impacted the way you approach or think about your life and business. When you don't see the wall, you kind of run through it and you're like, oh, I don't know it any other way. You just do it. Right. And my mom gave me those wings. She really amplified my own willingness to try and made it okay to fail. And because she was so willing to just push me all the time and also while pushing me, she kind of got out of the way and let me just do. It helped me just live really effectively at a young age where I wasn't worried about what ifs and this and that and the other. I was just doing and trying and failing and learning and growing. And it was like, you know, Speedy Gonzalez speed growth. And my parents are also divorced. So that kind of meant she was working a lot and she would give me guidelines of how to live my life and moral values and whatnot. But I was on my own a lot and she just let me be, but let me be with enough road. Like she's an amazing human. I think I owe a lot to my mother. And I know there's a story, which I'd love for you to share just kind of how, whether it was going from paying from bills or even negotiating her car. Can you just share some stories about that? Cause it's pretty amazing at such a young age to do. No, I mean, she really is something else. When I was about 13, 14, I realized that she's a nurse. She'd get home pretty late and had stacks of bills and papers all over the house. And I thought, man, like, what if I just figure out how to help her with these things? And, and one day I just sat down and started opening all the envelopes, Bank of America and everything. And I had learned in school how to write checks as one does when they're going through middle school or whatever. And I was like, all right, well, this can't be too difficult. It looks just like the checks at school. So I'll just kind of mimic that. And, and she came home and I said, you know, I, oh, you seem super stressed out. Like, I want to help you. I started opening all these bills. Like, do you want me to help you pay for them or whatever? And she's like, yeah, make me a list of all the expenses we have. And I did like this little mini financial plan for her, which we had learned to do in school. And she was just so relieved and felt so happy and said, thank you. This is perfect. Like she's a little, little Mexican lady. And that was it. She just like trusted me once. And from then on out, I did our bills until I moved to Mexico city to go to culinary school when I was 18. So from call it 13, 14 to 18, I was quite literally like her bookkeeper and she let me do it. And she didn't, she didn't really challenge me other than just like checking up on things, but she was just like, okay, that works. Go for it. That's incredible. It's taking what you're learning in middle school and actually applying it. I think every child should go through that process. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, it was really incredible because you listen to all this theory all day and you don't really get the practical goodness of life until you're like 24 graduating from college and you forget half the things you learned in middle school. And so this was me reading a book and going home and doing it and then being like, oh, that worked. That's cool. And all that gave me was confidence that I could, and that I could try more things and I could learn and try another thing and just keep going and blooming. So that was really special. 
You can definitely see that you were quite confident even at a young age. When you turn 18, you actually decided to move to Mexico City and not go down that typical route of college that all your friends in high school were doing at the time. Can you take us back to that moment and really walk us through why you decided to make this move? Because it really turned into a pretty massive moment in your life and something that I don't think your parents were also very supportive of. Yes, it was totally crazy and slightly ballsy. And to your point, all of my friends were going to college and I was the one renegade moving to a foreign country. And I didn't necessarily even know I was going to go to college when I moved to Mexico. I just wanted to go to Mexico for like a month and decided to stay for four years. But it was hard to put my blinders on and recognize that I was on my own journey and that my journey was my journey and that I didn't need to compare my journey to other people's. And when you're young and honestly, even today with Instagram and everything, you have to constantly be reminding yourself that everyone is on their own path. And just because something looks shiny on the outside doesn't mean that that's shiny on the inside. And you just have to find your, find your way. And, and I, you knew that at the time as well. Yeah. And I kind of had to like convince myself a little bit of that because I saw all of my friends going the left direction of like school. And here I was going off into the jungle of no man's land, Mexico. Like what, I just didn't know what was going to happen if, if I went in that direction. And it was the best thing I could have done because I really kind of found my life sea legs out there and got a million jobs, ended up going to culinary school there and truly learned what it took to make something out of nothing and to do it on my own. And when you can do that once, you feel such a sense of accomplishment that you're like, holy shit, I can do this again. And even if let's say everything burnt down to the ground, you could move to another place or move back home or wherever you go and just start again. And you made it, right? It wasn't the things around you that you accumulated. It was you that created that. That was like the biggest, best takeaway I got from Mexico was I arrived alone and I built my life there and then I left and I took not only myself, but all of my experience back home with me. And then I started all over again and got a job at Providence and decided to start Headley and Bennett there. But if I'd stayed in Mexico or if I had stayed in LA, none of those things would have happened. And life is a series of decisions, little decisions that lead you to other decisions. And it's just like, it is a windy road. There's no straight path to anything. And anyone that says that it's complete bullshit. <laughs> I 100% agree. And what I honestly love so much about your story is really how windy it was, right? So you briefly talked about this in Mexico City, you did a bunch of jobs to make ends meet. And I love for you to just kind of share some of those jobs. And you actually ended up doing really well and left it all to come to LA. So what were some of those jobs you were doing in Mexico City? Oh my gosh, it was quite the mosh pit. I did everything from be a English tutor to do modeling jobs. I was the national lottery announcer on television for Mexico. So Monday through Friday I would announce the winning lottery balls quite literally. And yeah. I mean, it was so <laughs> eclectic. I had a big condo house that I got and I rented all the rooms to foreign students coming to Mexico. And this was pre Airbnb. So I was just hustling, trying to figure out how do I do this? How to make it all work? I'm on my own. And my parents had said, you know, this is crazy. You need to come home. We're going to just 
cut you off financially so that you do come home. And, and my God, that just made me stay 10 times harder. Like I was like, I'm definitely not leaving. I am going to figure this out. So I did. And after being there for four years, I had all kinds of resources. I had built a great life. I had graduated college. You know, I had done all the things I had set out to do when I was 22. And I thought, this can't be it. Like, is this really it? Like your quote unquote life is set. And I just knew there was more to it. So I decided to sell all of it and actually went and traveled around the world for about two and a half months with that money and got to go climb Mount Fuji and visit England. And I went to Stonehenge and like weird ideas you have when you're 22 of like what you should do with your life. I was like, I'm going to go see Stonehenge because it's the right thing to do. (laughs) And then go to the Louvre and stuff like that. And then I returned back to my mother's house to live in her house with like, oh gosh, what a mind what a mind, you know what, like it was crazy yeah, yeah. And, and then I started from the bottom all over again, but it was awesome because then I proved it and I said, Ellen, go again and go. And then off I went and I started having it. You know, I'm actually curious when you were in Mexico City, you were doing pretty well for yourself and you finally felt established over there. So what was a driver in terms of leaving everything behind and moving back to L.A. in your mother's house? I genuinely feel that I had accomplished all of these big, crazy goals that I had and I didn't I didn't feel quite complete. And I realized that I enjoyed the challenge of the abyss. I enjoyed the challenge of not knowing. And when everything was all set and done, it was like the game was over and I wanted the next game. I wanted the next adventure. And I think a lot of people like work their whole lives to get to that place of like, it's done. And really the life is never done. Life is with you every single day that you wake up and you know it's up to you what you decide to do with it and that's why I decided to go back home I was like this game is not this is not quite over I need to I need to go challenge myself into other horizons and honestly living in Mexico by myself from 18 to 22 was one of the hardest things I've ever done it was not a cakewalk like it was very difficult and I ran into some very challenging situations and came out of it alive and thriving and so that was just more notches on my confidence belt that I could do this absolutely and I mean the perfect training better than an MBA in terms of what you've went through and a hustle and figuring things out and making things work that's like entrepreneurship to its max so you move back to LA you're living with your mom you actually ended up being a line cook at a few pretty prominent restaurants in LA. How did you go down that path as someone who just arrived here and didn't necessarily know like the right next step in terms of becoming a chef? I definitely fumbled a little bit at the beginning. It was a, it was a sticker shock to like land back in a bedroom in my mother's house after living this like extravagant life in Mexico City by myself with nobody to check in on me. But I got a job as like a personal chef for a couple of families. And I was just kind of like bobbing around for a few months while I figured out where and which restaurants and how do I do this? And I just started asking people like if I wanted to have, you know, I wanted to have my own spot. If I wanted to do that, I should work somewhere first. Where should I work? 
And it led me down this chain of events of a friend giving me a giant list of the best restaurants in LA. And then I walked into all 10 of those restaurants asking for a job, giving my resume. And it felt like I was right back in Mexico City. Those moments in Mexico that I had no idea would ever serve me again, where I was challenged and embarrassed and struggling with this idea that I was doing things that all of my friends weren't doing because they were in the US going to fancy schools. And here I was like slugging it out in Mexico, going to auditions, nine auditions a day, taking the bus, taking the subway, like walking miles to get to where I needed to go because I didn't have a car. Just crazy, whatever. It's not crazy, but it's like, it's a little crazy when you've lived your whole life in the United States and don't have that experience. And I just, I don't know, it became so much easier to do everything in LA because I had a car and because I didn't have to take public transportation and I literally could just get in my car and go somewhere and the time was gone. So I really appreciated the things that I had versus if I had never gone to Mexico, I don't think I would have appreciated everything that I did already have. And half the time, most of the time, you have the tools right in front of you. It's just like, how are you arranging your life and your time and your day to take advantage of them. And it takes hitting the ground floor of life sometimes to really embrace them. Totally. I agree with that. And I know you were saying you would kind of just barge into these restaurants and that's really what you learned in Mexico. You just hustle, show up, like that's how you would get things done. That's not necessarily how you become a line chef at a Michelin star restaurant, but I know they gave you a shot, right? And how was your experience when you were a line chef working at Uh, Providence, which in LA is a very well-known restaurant. That's very much a higher end, more conservative type of place. Totally. (laughs) Yes. Very proper, very conservative. (laughs) Not conservative politically, conservative in like seriousness. But yeah, I think that I was very challenged yet again. And you think about these jobs as being so sexy and flashy and glamorous and you think about like Rene Redzepi and El Bulli and and all you think is like David Chang level chef land and then you get in there and it is so hard it is such hard work and it's insane hours everyone is working their tails off no one's making any money I mean it is just like every challenge you could possibly imagine all slammed together in a totally new context. But I loved it because it was kind of like Mexico all over again. It was a completely new world, completely new challenge. I knew nothing about it. I knew no one. There was no person that got me in to get an interview. It was just like me. I was my own windshield. And I started building it from there. And that was awesome. Yeah, I know. In another interview, you were talking about how even sometimes you weren't even sure what to do, but you would just look at the other chefs and just follow them, whether they were cleaning or doing something specific, but you were just figuring things out on the job. (laughs) So ridiculous, but it was exact. I was like, okay, well, I need to prove my worth. So I don't know what to do with what they're doing, but I know how to clean. So I'm going to clean and I'm going to watch them while I clean and then I'll figure out what they're doing. Then I'll jump in and help. And then they'll give me a little more room to try and then I'll do a little more. And then when I don't know what I'm doing, I'm going to go back to cleaning. And you just kind of kept showing up and you kept being a sponge for learning with no ego. And that was kind of like the key, which ironically, now that Headley and Bennett has bloomed into a 
a much bigger company, when I am interviewing people, the things we look for, I always say to them, I'm like, no ego, super brilliant, really smart and willing to learn. I'm like, if you have those bits and pieces in your character, like you will crush it at Headley and Bennett. Yeah. And having that self-awareness to just constantly learn and not have that ego. But I totally agree with that. And so you're hustling behind the scenes at these restaurants, working many hours. How in the world did the idea of Headley and Bennett come about when you were just so consumed in one aspect of your life? So... The thing that really did it was there was a guy that I worked with at Providence and we had been talking about chef codes and how do we make chef codes better and how do we make our gear just looks like shit. Like we were just, we were kind of circling around this idea, like little sharks. And the idea was there and we were seeing it and we were staring at it and we couldn't quite put our finger on it. And somewhere in there, I was like, all right, I'm going to get a doing business as in California. And that's going to make this official, however that looks. And went down to Norwalk or wherever it is and got a doing business as I felt very proper. And then about a week and a half, two weeks later, my chef at Baco said that there was a girl who's going to make him aprons and asked if I wanted to buy one from that pile of aprons he was getting. And that was it. That was the moment where I just realize like, okay, this is going to happen and I'm going to do this. And it's totally insane. And nobody is going to believe in it because it doesn't exist right now, but I believe in it and makes so much sense. And nobody's making good gear and uniforms for this world that like are proper. And I'm going to make them proper. And that was it. I leaped into my next abyss. <laughs> Yeah. And before, I mean, when you and your colleague were kind of throwing around ideas, was it around creating this beautiful, amazing, well-fitted apron or was it just throwing out different business ideas with the goal of kind of jumping on something? No, it was, it was very specific. It had everything to do with garment, like garment for the kitchen. It was like the best uniform, the uniform that makes you look and feel awesome, the gear that you put on and you're like, this is my freaking Superman cape. I put it on and I'm like, legit. That was the feeling that we were going for. And we were trying to figure out like, how do you make that feeling happen? And every day you'd walk in there, you put your like horrible apron on and be there with your like schlub outfit till the end of the night. And it's not a vanity thing. It really isn't. It's like when you're in a professional kitchen, the tools you have to have are a cutting board, a knife and an apron. And that's functional. That's, that's it. There's like the functional baseline in a pro kitchen. You cannot not have an apron. It's not the same in home kitchens, which ironically is now the next abyss that I'm leaping into with Hubley and Bennett is going after the home consumer. But back then this idea of outfitting pro chefs with gear that was beautiful and well-made and designed with Japanese denim was like, nobody was doing that. That was unheard of. Like it, it didn't even exist, not even for a second. So I know what it feels like to run down the road with no one cheering you on but yourself. And I've done it enough times to know that it's worth the run. <laughs> yeah. And it's pretty amazing that, you know, you guys are talking about this idea and the opportunity, or you were aware of an opportunity that kind of presented itself yeah. and you jumped on it and you're like, I'm actually, I'll create it for you. Yeah. And that really pushed you to bring the business really to life. So circling back to those early days, what did it look like? Because you didn't necessarily have a background in manufacturing or textiles. So like legitimately fulfilling this order that you had that you committed to yeah. without a lot of money, how did you bring that to life in the early days? 
I mean, it is like how the sausage is made. It ain't pretty. It just like you jam it all together and like shove it through the tube. Um, it was very like hack job figure it out. I asked a bajillion questions. I called a million people. We ran around LA. I took a deposit because I had no money to fund the first order. And I convinced this like older Mexican guy to help me sew the first batch. And he ripped us off. And then the fabric wasn't right. And I had to redo the aprons because they were over wrinkling and falling apart very quickly. The straps were falling apart. It was about as much of a disaster as it could have possibly been the first batch. And then the second batch was not great either, but I just, there was a feeling of something is here and I can't not try and I'm going to believe. I'm gonna believe that this is going to work. And half the time in business, you just have to believe that other people are going to believe like you believe. And then you just bring it to life. Like it genuinely takes individual belief to bring an idea to life. Like you think about Steve Jobs and these guys that created these wild things in the world. It took one thought and then they built on it. And that's where it starts. It's just like a decision that you can Absolutely. And especially for you, you really knew the need of something like this because yeah. you were in that world. Yeah. And so I'm sure your why and purpose was so powerful that whenever you hit roadblocks, you're like, okay, no, like I know there's a market for this. I know people love what I'm doing. Yeah. And that just kind of pushed you yeah. through those moments. And I appreciate you being so transparent about that because I'm sure, you know, people who know you, now you're running a multi-million dollar company. It's easy to compare and say, you know, now Ellen has this beautiful line. Yeah. She's coming out with new masks and yeah. all these things. But it's not easy the first few years to really like create your product and establish it. So at one point where you, you guys kind of gained this virality around the apron. So after that first order that you hustled around town to get done, yeah. what were the next few steps that came after that? It was a lot of community building and face-to-face, street-by-street, chef-by-chef kind of hustle and getting to know people and hearing about their spaces and their restaurants and becoming a part of their world. And other people would say like, oh, do you know Ellen? Let me connect you with Ellen. And it was just like, dude, 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 dude. But for many years, right? So it was not overnight either. And, and you do see, I think like, let's just take, she's a friend of ours. It's like her husband has a family that has a massive corporation. They've learned years of things about kitchen world, right? But to the outside eye, it's like, it's an overnight success. And the truth is like, Shiza has worked her butt off to build her own brand and her own world and did so much through the Malala Fund and all of these things. It's like, nothing is actually overnight, even if it seems like it is. And there's just that you always have to remember, like everyone is on their own journey. Everyone is on their own path. And it did take many years of me convincing, and then not just me, but my team convincing people that they needed this, that they could have a better uniform, that they could have something that felt right. And you have enough conviction about something that then other people believe it. And then they realize this is actually better. I should wear this. Okay, this makes sense. And then it becomes 
normal. But new ideas are crazy. It takes years of persistence to make it quote unquote normal. Absolutely. And it definitely does not happen overnight. And looking at your journey, I know you were still working multiple jobs while you launched Heavily Embedded. At what point did you realize that you were really onto something and the company was big enough for you to quit your job and do it full time? I quit. So I think a lot of businesses plan their businesses for a while before launching them, if you will. And my launch was my first order. So I never built up the, call it correct infrastructure at the beginning to really like permit the growth that we received. And that made it very difficult. So I spent a lot of time navigating what that looked like, which was getting like six MBAs all at once. (laughs) Like growing a business is hard, Keeping it successful is hard. And then building operational infrastructure when you've never done it before and you don't have any resources except for yourself is extra hard. And so I was doing kind of all of that all at once while working another job. So it was really intense. (laughs) It was very, very, very intense. And I definitely look back and I'm just exhausted at how we figured that all out. But we just kind of again, had this faith that it was going to happen and just this belief that it could. And I just kept doing it and didn't stop. And we, we always evolved like, and it, that really pushed it forward. And major, major props to even be able to support that virality around the company. I mean, we've had entrepreneurs come on our show that have said they had to stop the orders or even shut down the company because it's so tough to meet the demand. It's such a beautiful thing. But on the flip side, as an entrepreneur, it's so difficult sometimes, which as you experience yourself. And also to think about the infrastructure that you have to put into place. I mean, that is just so much on your plate to even manage in a high growth company. I'm also curious, as someone who self-funded this business for such a long time. I don't believe you brought in any investors, but what tips or advice do you have for someone who is starting their business and is looking to self-fund in the early days and really support the growth, very similar to what you did? So actually this year, I decided to get a strategic partner because I wanted to take Headley and Bennett to the next level. And I spent a solid year and a half talking to people and actually walked away from many, many term sheets and many, many deals because I didn't feel like they really were aligned. And at that time, it wasn't cool to be profitable. It was just all about like top line revenue. And I was looking for partners that believed in profitability because Headley and Bennett had been a profitable company. And I wanted a partner that would push us to the next level with that in mind. And it was difficult to say the least to find people like that. And I finally did. And I feel really fortunate that I did. But yeah, for the first seven and a half years, I took $300 that I started it with and grew it to much, much more than that. And I would say that the first many years, my tried and true kind of beliefs were never spend more than you make reinvest every penny back into the business and never sit on your laurels. Always evolve and try something else and be creative and be scrappy. And if we couldn't make a product ourselves because we didn't have the supply chain or the infrastructure to do it, we would do a 
a collaboration with somebody and we just kept pushing the envelope by thinking outside the box. And that really propelled us forward. But I reached a point as an entrepreneur where I had a business and I had a brand, but I didn't have the operational guts Mm -hmm. and I needed those guts really bad. And it was getting harder and harder because you can will your way into a lot when you're just stubborn like I am. (laughs) But there's a point where the business is got so much nuance that you just can't will it into the future anymore without things like an ERP system and inventory tracking that's accurate and a CFO who can manage your P&L and is telling you, you know, what your margins are. Like there was just, and they're accurate. And they're accurate. Right. (laughs) Like, oh my gosh, accurate inventory. What a concept. (laughs) And all of that just kind of it was like I was peeling back an onion because I did this brand, 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 company, 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 profitability. And then I like kind of like peeled it back and realized that there was so much missing from the inside that I kind of had to Benjamin button a little bit and go backwards and, and like backfill the missing parts that I didn't have when the company began. And I think that had limited, it would be a lot bigger than it is today if I had done that back then. But it's just like, how the hell was I supposed to know when I was 24 years old as a line cook that this business was going to bloom into what it is today? And I, I genuinely don't have any regrets on it because I learned so much. And now because we have these like amazing strategic partners, it's like we kind of are starting a company all over again, but with everything I didn't have the first time. That's amazing. And congratulations. I didn't know that. But I think what's really helpful for our listeners, because we've had some investors come on our podcast, and it's helpful to really take the time like you did and evaluate who they are, what they're looking for in a company. You know, like you said, some really focus on high growth, top line revenue, and you wanted to build a profitable company. So it's amazing that you found the right partner, not to say one's better than the other, but one that aligns with who you are, since this is really like your child, your baby that you brought to the world. So that's beautiful. Yeah. Do not, I think for, yeah, for young business owners, it's like, there's many ways to skin a cat. You don't have to raise money. I made a really conscious decision that I was going to go down that path. And the reason that happened was because my CFO said to me, you have this opportunity here. You have this beautiful blooming business and you can continue to grow it organically and just keep it as your Ellen business, hundred percent ownership, or you can go down this other path and take it and really like catapult it. And that just felt like an opportunity I couldn't not take up. And like when I went to Mexico and like when I started Headley and Bennett, it was just like the next abyss, the next challenge to leap into of, I don't know, but I believe, and we're going to do this. Talking about you believing and being an unknown, this year has been crazy for everybody, right? We're in this pandemic, uncertain economy that we're in. And especially for you, when your clients were predominantly at that, I would say earlier this year, restaurants. So how in the world has this year been for you? I know you guys have pivoted quite a bit, but I'd love to really learn more about how you transition the company quickly during these difficult times, because so many entrepreneurs are still figuring out that piece right now who are listening. Yeah, it was the 
craziest whiplash pivot I've ever done in my life. And my God, have I done some pivots? <laughs> it was a 24 hour decision from the day that we shut down in LA because of COVID. And we decided that we were going to turn our 16,000 square foot factory into a face mask facility. And this was long before it was the thing to do, or it was cool, or it was, you know, now it's like Hudson jeans, whoever they're making masks. But back then nobody was making masks and everyone was terrified. And I just kind of decided we couldn't not contribute to our community. We couldn't not do our part to help. And we had all of this now infrastructure here. What was I just going to like leave it and go home and hide in the closet? Like, no, I needed to do something. And so we came up with a mask pattern that day. And the next morning we put it up on our website. On Monday, we were cutting masks and by Wednesday, we were shipping masks. Wow. We did it through a buy one, donate one model so that we, cause we couldn't do it on our own. And we asked our community to participate and we were only shipping the donated masks for the first like few weeks to hospital workers, frontline workers. And these masks, just like the first aprons, were not perfect. They were scrappy. They were like basic but we needed to make something to help people. And we figured we might as well like fail and try and improve than not try at all. And I'm like holding our third iteration of the mask now. And we have to date made over 350,000 for donations. And we've made over a million masks in total. And that was a very wild, very unexpected egregiously large pivot. We didn't make any aprons for that time. We just made masks. But ironically, we did that and our apron world and kitchen gear world actually did really well because people were at home and they were cooking. And so they wanted to look the part and feel the part and kind of like be a pro chef at home, if you will, and, and look cute in the kitchen. So that was a great jump start for us. COVID ended up being a good like kick in the right direction. Yeah. And I feel like we hear that a lot in terms of if you're looking at the moment as an opportunity versus like you said, hiding at home in your closet, you were being proactive, trying to be creative on how you can use your factory that was sitting there idly for a purpose. And that created just a whole new opportunity for the company. So that's awesome to hear. And you know, looking back at your life, you've experienced so many ups and downs and challenges. And I'd be curious to learn more about how do you deal with your mental health? Are there any tips that you do that kind of sustain, whether it's your energy, anxiety, or just, you know, being a leader of a high growth startup is difficult. So what works for you? Yeah, it's really difficult. And I think that that it's not for the faint of heart. And running a company is not the only way to be an entrepreneur. And I really genuinely try to tell that to people like I need entrepreneurs in my company. You don't just have to run a company to be entrepreneurial. And it's kind of like, it's a little bit insane to be the person that's like, I'm going to go do this, but here I am and I'm doing it. And I think the things that are keeping me afloat are a combination of things combined with sleeping enough or attempting to sleep enough. I do try to get between seven to eight hours of sleep every night. And when I don't, like last night, I slept like five and a half hours because I had to get through a bunch of different emails and I'm exhausted today. And it just makes it so much harder to be able to deal with everything being flung at you. 
So sleep, vitamins, I really try and not drink as much as I can because I just find that like hangovers are really aggressive on your acute awareness to what's happening around you. And you're like, you're the chief coach. Like you got to be on your A game. Your team can't be standing there being like, is our coach drunk? Like that's just wrong. So you have a serious responsibility for your troops. So, you know, I try not to drink. I exercise pretty religiously and I go at like 7 a.m., which is the only kind of slot that I have a lot of times. And I spend a good amount of time in my bathtub when the world is ending. I climb into my tub and I just sit there for like two hours. If things are really rough, I get off of Instagram because Instagram is a death hole of comparison and disaster, even if it looks fantastic. And it's like, I strictly am in there because I, you know, it's for business and want to amplify what you're doing to the world. But man, it is a dark, dark hole of gloom sometimes. So if I'm having a rough time, I do not go on Instagram. I delete myself out of there and I try and be outside. So looking at the sky, going on walks, like don't be in a screen when you are in your head. It does not help. So those are just like some of the basics and I have a coach. I have a leadership coach who is amazing. And, you know, when I first got her, I was like, this can't be therapy. I need you to actually just like <laughs> help me on the business. You're not allowed to get all woo woo on me. I need you to just focus on the key things. And she was like, all right, all right. And so she's just like a sergeant drill master with me and keeps me in check. And it's great because I can talk to her and get it all out. But it's very objective and it's rarely emotional. It's all about, okay, well, what are you going to do about it? How are you going to fix that? How can you be in control? And that is a big thing when you're an entrepreneur is just like the whole getting into the mindset of like you're a victim to yourself or whatever the hell happens. You can't do it. Like you have to just own it, own the mess ups, own the successes, and then move the fuck forward. <laughs> yeah. It's true. No, literally yesterday when you said that, it reminded me something happened in my business and it was a mistake. But like when you're moving fast and you're creating something new, I literally was so disappointed in myself. And I'm like, this is not productive. Yeah. Like I just have to move on, you know, and you got to snap out of yeah. it because you can easily just have a pity party because you're kind of the leader and everything. And you're like, how am I supposed to tell my team? Yeah. This is like embarrassing. It's a whole thing. So, totally. Yeah. Totally. You have to like yeah. scrape yourself off the floor with your own spatula. <laughs> you're like, all right, up and at them. Let's go. Yeah. And one thing you forgot to mention was your beautiful pet, Oliver. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I don't know if we consider him your pet pig, yes. but can you share more about Oliver? Oh my God. Yes. I forgot about my wild farm. They really do. I'm not kidding. They keep me sane. I love those funny animals I have. I have a 200 pound pet pig and I have six chickens and they're all silkies and they're so funny and ridiculous. And they just like squawk around. And when the world was ending this year, they were just like, can we have more bread? And I'm like, okay. Like they're just so basic and it's incredible. And I love them. And we have some that we call the party chickens and they're just silly. They sit on the couch with us. The pig sleeps on the couch. It's like, what could go wrong with those hooligans in our lives? 
Yeah, I love it. They're so I've seen them on your Instagram. Yeah. It always brings me so much joy. I'm like, this is amazing. <laughs> yeah, Oliver's the best. Every night climbs onto the couch. Everyone can go follow him on Oliver's Pig Adventures on Instagram. Oliver's Pig Adventures. Well, we'll add him to our show notes for sure. <laughs> bring more joy to more people's I lives. <laughs> I want to close on one last question that we love to ask all of our guests. Wealth means so much more than money and everybody has their own definition of wealth. Yeah. For you at this point of your life, what does wealth mean to you? Mm, such a good question. What does wealth mean to me? I think genuine friendships and like real experiences is wealth. And every experience that I've had that's been so intense, COVID included, is wealth because we are that much more resilient with all of those experiences. And so just like living, living is wealth to me. Every day is like a new day that I got to clock in and like stick into my life bank account. And even though life is not always peachy, it's like the fact that we're still alive today, we could be gone tomorrow and like not to get depressing about it, but like that is the genuine truth. And it's so finite and we do forget that and we definitely take it for granted. And it's a beautiful thing that every day we get new experiences. So th that is wealth to me and all of the people that I get to have along the way in those experiences being my, my husband, my family, my chickens, my pig, my team, like my friends, all of those people. And honestly, all of the community that I don't know, but that there is a bright side, I guess you could say, to Instagram where there's people out there that you don't know that bring you joy because you're helping them and they're helping you and and you're not alone. And I think that's a beautiful thing, remembering we're not alone. We're all in this kind of together. I love that. Thank you, Ellen. That is such a beautiful answer. I so appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to chat with us today. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. You're an amazing interviewer. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.